We live in a vast sea of data. Information is collected about every one of us with every click, every swipe, every post, and every like. This is a podcast about how to navigate responsibly and find a meaningful place to put ashore in the ocean of big data. Welcome to the Quantitative Ethnography Podcast, hosted by David Williamson Schaefer, Faculty Director of the Master of Science in Educational Psychology Learning Analytics Program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. My guest today is Zach Swicky. He's a lecturer in the Department of Human-Centered Computing and a researcher in the Center for Learning Analytics at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, and also a former graduate student of mine. Welcome, Zach. Hi, David. Nice to be here. We are talking about a number of things, but including folks who may have read Zach's wonderful paper, Assessing Individual Contributions to Collaborative Problem Solving, a Network Analysis Approach. So some of what we say may be referring to that. So Zach, one of the things that I really love about that paper is the way that you handled the qualitative data. Could you talk a little bit about how you think about packing and unpacking qualitative data when you're working with it? For me, uh, just to talk a little about what those things are, when I, th- when I think about packing, I think about setting the context for what we're about to see as the reader, saying something about this is what's going on, this is the point that I kind of want us to take from this that I'm about to show, and then the evidence comes in the form of some qualitative data. Here is actually what I was talking about before when I was packing, and then the unpacking is actually going through that evidence and relating it to that overall claim, and they're number of ways to do this, but usually you go through that data line by line, giving quotes from the data where where appropriate and referencing specific lines. And the whole time you're relating it back to that overall claim that you were talking about when you packed uh, at the beginning. One of the things that I think makes it effective is if you're actually referring to the specific codes that you're seeing in the qualitative excerpts, you're actually sort of like coding it as you go. Yeah. So you're showing, you know, you're kind of showing how the, the codes are, are building that story and related to that story. Typically, it's good when you're showing the qualitative evidence or you're, you're not just showing excerpts, but you're showing where those codes are applied in those excerpts. And when you're unpacking, you're referencing those codes in, in some way. In a sense, it's a translation or data compression, right? You're starting with the qualitative data, you're translating that into the codes, and then ultimately those codes get translated into the story and into the model, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. One of the things that was tricky about this paper was these are very long examples that you're trying to mm-hmm. give, and they're examples that are in a domain that most people aren't familiar with. How did you approach yeah. setting that up? First, I should say there was quite a long process of familiarizing myself with the data as it, as it wasn't in a context that I was particularly familiar with either. I wasn't in the Navy. So there was a lot of reading of the data, reading of background resources, talking to people who were involved in actually collecting this data. I was lucky enough to have a contact who was around when this was actually done. Thinking about that, I think that it was important to really set that context for the readers. This is generally what's going on in this space. This is what the people are doing. This is why they're doing it. These are the kinds of things that they'll say. This is the environment they're in. That's really important here. It's not just a conversations where, where students are talking to each other. These are people in the military and they use certain terms, certain tools. So you want to set that up pretty clearly. And then in terms of the actual excerpts and examples and things that we're talking about that can get quite long, I, I think the way to handle that is to split those up meaningfully, right? So you, you, you split them up so you're not going through 
large chunks of data all at once. And while you're doing that splitting up and when you're conveying that to the reader, you're kind of interpreting that as you go along and you're summarizing it as you go along. Here is a piece of this overall thing that I'm trying to show you. This is what that means. We're going to the next one. This is what this means. And then when you get to the end, you kind of put it all together and say, overall, we've seen with this story, right? It splits it up and chunks it up for the reader and also gives them these waypoints and along the argument to see what we're building towards and what we're getting at. I sometimes think of it or sometimes tell people when they're writing, almost imagine that your reader wants to be able to skim over stuff and that when they kind of get to the end of it and realize that they're at the end of a piece, be able to read yeah. one or two sentences about what they should have known and then just keep going when they want. I guess I would add that maybe with data that's from a more familiar context, you might be able to get away with longer sections or longer excerpts. But for this, you read the first line and it's like, what is that? <laughs> you know, what are, what are they talking about? So you could really uh, stress out or tax your reader if you put like 20 lines of text where people are talking about helicopters and nobody knows what they are or something, right? It kind of depends on the data as well, I think. No, that's a good point. Do you think you have to do the same kind of packing and unpacking with quantitative results? And if so, is that similar or different from packing and unpacking qualitative data? I think so. Yeah. And uh, so this is an interesting question because I, I don't tend to actually think about it in terms of unpacking and packing when I think of quantitative results. But I think about when I'm writing and when I'm presenting things, I think that there is a similar thing going on. One thing I would say is that when we're talking about packing, setting the context, this is what we're going to see, right? A lot of that happens in the, the methods. These are the methods that we're going to apply. This is how they work. This is the data we're applying them to. And I kind of see that as a similar role to packing with qualitative data. And then when you get to the, the results section, right, depending on the length of the paper, if it's a conference paper, you might just dive right into the results because we just saw the methods before. Our context is kind of still in our minds. But if it's a longer paper, like the one that we're talking about specifically today, you'll notice in some places I reminded the reader, here is what we're going to do. These are the methods we use. Here's what we're about to see. And then you go in and start diving into the result. So there is a bit of packing there. We were looking at the counts of the commanders at one condition versus the other. We use this method, et cetera. And then you start going into what you found. The unpacking is interesting because I, I think it is actually very similar to what you do with qualitative data, it's just that the reference is different. So in unpacking qualitative data, your evidence is text, some structured text, typically ordered, or some discourse. But for quantitative data, the reference can be a data table, regression results, it could be an ENA graph. And those require different ways of, of going through them. Like you can kind of go through a regression table because it's very structured and ordered and highlight what things mean and why it's important and interpret the results. But an ENA graph, it's less structured in the sense that you can kind of decide where you start and where you start to unpack. But you're doing the same thing. You know, you're saying, this is this result. This is what this means related to my overall claim. What do you think are the key parts of writing up an ENA model? What are the pieces yeah. that you have to make sure you do? It's kind of related to the last question. I think it starts in the methods. So having a clear description in your methods about what you're going to do. And, and by that, I mean that not necessarily explaining exactly what ENA does, uh, depending on the audience, you might need to do that. But there are lots of things you can do with ENA, right? So you might be just focusing on the statistical comparisons of the plotted points, for example, or you might be focusing on the networks, or you might be doing a network subtraction, or, or you might not be doing some of that, right? So saying in the methods, like, these are the pieces of that, that ENA affords us to do that I'm going to be using that you're going to see later, right? Aligning that up. Then when you get to, the, to actually writing up the ENA model, 
you know, I think about it in terms of interpreting the dimensions, because I personally think that's the most uh, important part. So interpreting the dimensions of the, of the space, if you're showing network graphs, which is fairly typical, and you're showing uh, like a subtraction or a difference between groups or individuals, it's always good to describe the individual networks first and you know, show what's going on in this one and what's going on in that one. And then when you get to the subtraction, show the differences between them. These things are going on in this group more or less than this group or this individual or that individual. Then uh, again, this is kind of dependent on the study. You'll probably talk about some statistical results, some statistical tests that you're doing on these networks or plotted points. And then I think no matter what you're doing, if you're using ENA, you want to relate these results back to some qualitative understanding that you had of the data. So typically, I like to start with a a qualitative interpretation of, of the results, and then the quantitative stuff comes after, and then I relate that quantitative stuff back to what we saw qualitatively to link that back for the reader. Like This is all about this one thing. This quantitative evidence is supporting what we talked about earlier. Don't forget that. Why lead with the qualitative and then the quantitative? Why not just show that this is this general pattern and then give an example? That's a good question. And I wouldn't say that you maybe always need to do it, but um, it's kind of something I like to do because I actually think that seeing it qualitatively is a much more like I don't really know the word, like a grounded or a visceral or concrete experience for the for the reader. You can actually see, okay, this is what's going on for these subjects in this in this experience. I can actually imagine what that is. I can see what they say. Here's this, here's this, that makes sense to me. Where it starts to break down for some people is like, okay, well, they could have just shown me these couple of things and you know, I don't really know like how extensive this is in the data at large. So that's where the quantitative stuff comes in for me. It's backing up what we saw before. So if you were to do it the other way, perhaps a bit less clear about what the quantitative aspects of the model are standing for, what they actually mean in relation to the real data. And so then there could be some confusion for the reader, like, okay, here's all these numbers or network graph or something. And I don't really quite know what that means. I know that it's this code and there's some words or whatever. And then you read it later and like, oh, like, oh okay. And then you have to keep going back. I think it's a more structured experience for the reader when they, they see the real context and then they can relate that for themselves to the, the quantitative model. Now, how you do it in practice is, is perhaps different, but this is about how we construct the argument and the story for the reader. In some ways, that touches on some of the things that we're reading about this week in the sense that it highlights the role of the quantitative relative to the qualitative. That is, the qualitative discourse is sort of where the claim gets made. And then the quantitative discourse is what warrants theoretical saturation. If you do it the other way around, it's weird to warrant theoretical saturation for something that you haven't actually claimed yet, if you see what I mean. Yeah. I mean, and I would say like, at least the way that, you know, even if you look in QE, like the, you know, the book, the way it's described, it starts with qualitative for the most part, if I remember correctly. But I mean, it, just in the definition of QE, it's about warranting qualitative claims with quantitative uh, techniques. So in my mind, this this qualitative piece, I I wouldn't say is maybe more important, but it's at least what I go to first or think about as like what I'm I'm actually getting at. This is the thing that we're trying to explain and and get some evidence for. It's qual forward. Yeah, sure. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think of this, the relationship between the codes, which of course are the nodes in the model and the story that you're telling? So when we think of models, we tend to think of uh, quantitative things. Like we think of ENA, we think of turning things into numbers. We think of 
those kinds of things. But you can have, I guess, like a, a qualitative model as well. Like a model is just a re-representation of something that's easier to think with or to use that takes the the salient aspects of whatever the thing is that's being modeled. So I think of codes as a kind of model for the qualitative data or a way to represent the, what's going on in qualitative data that's easier to understand and work with. And it's easier to understand and work with for the researcher, I think, because here's this mass of qualitative data and this, this phenomenon I'm trying to understand. It lets you break that into manageable pieces in the beginning. Oh, I noticed this is going on. That seems important. I noticed that's going on. That seems important here. Let's categorize things, group them together according to, to those things. And then you get to a space where like, okay, well, these, it's not that these things are just important or they're happening. This code or this type of thing is actually related to this other thing or it connects to this other thing in one way. When this happened, the other one happened or you know, various ways that things can be connected. So then you get to that part of the story. There's actually links or, or relationships between these codes. So for me, it, may, it makes it easier to uncover the story. It lets me start, break it down into a smaller pieces of a problem and then see how they're related later. Also, it makes it easier to communicate that story, I think, to the reader. It lets them go through that process of, here are these pieces, here's how they're connected. Also, lets them contest them in a certain way, right? If you just told the qualitative story and you didn't maybe have these pieces of the puzzle that you built up before that people could point to and that you pointed to and looked at, then they can't really say, if it's there, they can say, oh yeah, I, I see what you mean by that. That looks like it matches up or they can say, no, I actually think that that means something else. It makes it an, a contestable thing that you can actually argue with as opposed to just something fluffy. It also <laughs> provides a relationship back to some theory or theories, right? It should. So your codes, you can get them in multiple ways, right? You can just do a grounded approach and see what's happening in the data. But that, even then, that, that's always going to be related to some theoretical framework or something that somebody has looked at before, maybe even completely. So that's a way for you to link back to that theory. And sometimes you can just get your codes straight from the theoretical framework or from what somebody else has, has done before as well. Um, and so, yeah, it makes that connection pretty explicit. Given that you've come up with these codes to tell the story, how do you decide what codes to use in your ENA models? You might have 15 codes or 20 codes that you used while you were exploring the data and trying to make sense mm -hmm. of it. It's not an easy question. And part of it comes with like experience and experimenting and testing and looking at things. But I mean, I think initially when you're coming up with your initial set of them, for me, it's typically starts with a grounded approach. And I say that where I'm going into the data and looking, but also I know of theories that might apply here. I know what realm within which this data is talking to in the larger community. So I have that stuff in my head too. You see things that are salient in the data and you have things that are perhaps theoretically uh, linked that you might be bring, bringing to bear on the data too. And then you get this whole set of things that are happening. So then you might start to decide which of them to put into your ENA model. And I think for ENA, you want to not have too many codes, right? You can kind of, things can get hard to interpret if you have over say you know 12 15 codes like I, I i typically like to go for like eight to ten maybe and the way that i think about that is one i think about well which of these seem to be standing out to me as most important or most related when i was looking through this qualitatively right and that might call the field you know pretty quickly i saw okay this thing was going on but it didn't really seem that important to me or what it wasn't maybe it was only in a small subset of the data that i saw or what, what have you the other thing you can do is when you actually start building your ENA models, you'll notice that, so ENA is about maximizing differences between people in terms of the way that they're making connections in their discourse. So not all 
codes and connections do that equally. And you can actually see in the model when some codes and connections aren't distinguishing people or groups or, or what have you. They tend to be in the middle of the model instead of at the extremes because the codes and connections at the extremes are the ones that are doing the most distinguishing. So that can suggest uh, to you maybe, well, it doesn't seem that this code or that these connections are playing a, an important role in distinguishing these participants. What happens if I take them out? Sometimes when you take them out, the model doesn't change that much at all. Sometimes when you do, it, it does. You have to kind of make this decision. But yeah, that's how, how I think about it. It's an iterative process. And QE, people talk a lot about this notion of iterative models. Could you say a little bit about like why the iterativity is important? Lots of reasons. Uh, I mean, sometimes you just don't, you don't know what, you never really know what the right model is going to be or, or what, what the best model is going to be or what the most justifiable model is going to be. There's this aspect of you try something and then find out later that it doesn't work for some reason. Either you, your operationalization of something was poor or you weren't attending to something in the data or it's some other variable appears to be affecting things here. So you kind of redo it. It's a research process, right? So you're, you're iterating and getting to something that seems to be meaningful. But at the same time, by doing it iteratively, it helps you understand your data better. So you start with your data, uh, at least the way that I do it. You start with your data, you have some hypotheses about what's going on, you develop an initial model, you get some results from that model, and then you're not just done, right? You go back from those results back to the original data and see if that actually makes sense and that those are in tight alignment. And sometimes when you do that, you realize, oh, this model is missing something. Because I think we forget that there's quite large time gaps between coming up, looking at your data and seeing what's in it, and then making your model. Sometimes it's not just 10 minutes down the road or a day down the road. It could be weeks or months or whatever. So you get your model and you get a result and you want to go back and validate that model or close that loop and you can change things. The other thing that I would say is that it's just practical, I think. We talked about this a lot and I think it's kind of maybe your approach to a lot of things, but you get a pipeline in place. You get uh, an analysis pipeline in place that's easier to iterate from later. So instead of trying to get it perfect the first time, which can take a really long time and you might end up changing it later or, or this, right? You start with something simple. You get it going from you know soup to nuts. It starts, it gets an output. You can investigate it, you can change it. And then once you have that, even if it's likely too simple or not, not the right thing, you have something. You've gone through a whole bunch of processes. You've looked at your data. You've developed some more understanding. And now that you have that thing, you can improve it. You can start building on it, improving it, instead of trying to just get that thing right from the, in the first place, which can take a really long time. So that's the whole sort of model zero approach. Yeah. When you're doing this iteration, though, how do you iterate and avoid either just cherry picking qualitative data or doing the conceptual equivalent of p-hacking? To me, I think cherry picking and p-hacking, I think, are slightly different things when I think about them. So, and I actually think that quantitative ethnography is kind of a, a guard against cherry picking. So you could pick the best examples that you want, right, and show them. But then if you show your quantitative results and they're not showing that this is an actual pattern in the data, then like you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot. It's a protection against that. The whole point is to show evidence that this isn't just something that you picked out of your hat or like pick the best thing. The P-hacking thing is a bit more interesting because I think it kind of depends on, on your intent and on also how justifiable you are. Like, so I was reading back through the chapter on saturation, right? And you have this example where um, I think the model zero is using counts of uh, a mentor talk. 
there's not a statistically significant result between the two groups you're looking at in the first half and the second half. So you do a second model where you use the percentages. And this is makes sense, right? Because some conversations have much more talk in them, right? So the, the actual raw counts are, can be misleading. And then when you use the percentages, if I remember correctly, there is a statistically significant result. Now, if you look at that in one way, somebody say, oh, that's p-hacking, right? You did a result, a model, you didn't get something significant, so you changed it, you did, you're going to report the, the significant one. Setting aside the fact that you reported both of them in, in, in this, because this, you were making a larger point, that decision that you made to go to um, percentages rather than raw counts was justifiable and more aligned to what was actually going on in the data. So that's, that's not p-hacking to me, that's just good research. You looked at your results and you were like, oh, wait a minute, like go back and look at this. Actually, this other thing is going on. Maybe you didn't notice it before. That can happen. Maybe you intentionally didn't put it there because you were just trying to get your model set up so you can run it. But you made that change for a reason that's based on the data or based on theory or just common sense. Like I said, that's not p-hacking to me. That's making justifiable decisions to align your quantitative model with the actual grounded data. Part of it is you're not actually trying to generalize beyond the data that you have. You're just trying to explain the data that you have in a way that makes sense. That's a little, little bit tricky because you're trying to explain the data that you have, but the reason that we're using statistics is because there is some generalizability aspect of it. It's just the population that you are generalizing to is different than you would normally conceptualize in a typical statistical uh, analysis, right? You're not generalizing to some other population of similar people you're generalizing to. What if we kept observing these people or what if we were able to repeat this over and over again for these people and keep going? Would we see the same thing? Is this a pattern, right? So there's still a generalization. It's just where it's going. And we decide what that is as, as researchers, essentially. That's the whole idea of the hypothetical population, right? Yes. This chapter is about theoretical saturation, exchangeability, hypothetical populations. That's a very mathematical, statistical, conceptual perspective. How central is it to QE, either as a method or intellectual enterprise, but also how important is it to somebody who just wants to use QE and kind of move on? I think it's definitely central and important to me. It's QE, right? It's not Q and or E. <laughs> so, so we're talking about it being qualitative forward. And you can do qualitative research by itself, and that's fine. And you can do quantitative research, and that's fine. But this is another way of looking at that. It's a way of providing additional evidence or warrants right, for your claims either way. And so to do that in this framework requires using some mathematical perspectives or some quantitative ideas. That's the whole point of it. We're literally using quantitative methods to help warrant qualitative claims. So yeah, you have, you have to touch into that if you, if you want to actually use this method meaningfully. That being said, you could use it without knowing that you're doing that, but that's a different <laughs> problem, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. How do you explain those things when you're talking to somebody who's either new to QE or when you actually stumble into a place where those make a big difference in terms of how you're interpreting a model or constructing a model? Coming at it from this hypothetical population uh, thing helps a lot. Thinking about what we're actually generalizing to. So, and we just talked about this, right? It's a, there's a difference in what we're generalizing to and what, what you might be in a typical statistical analysis. But I think the key for me is like thinking that that's just the, the way that we talk about that. And I think what the, good, the really interesting thing about QE for me is that it's really just a re 
definition or a redescription of theoretical saturation. That's the whole point. When you're a qualitative researcher, you are making the claim that this is theoretically saturated. But the problem is you have to trust that. How is the researcher warranting that to the reader other than giving an erudite explanation of what's going on? They can't in just, in just the document, right? You have to talk to them and they have to keep showing you stuff. Here's this, here's this, here's this. But if you have this quantitative piece, you can show it and put it right there and it's contestable and you can talk about it. Here's the other evidence for this. What I was saying isn't just cherry picking. There's statistical evidence for this. That's kind of how I talk, I talk about it with other folks. I mean, we can get into exchangeability and things like that if, if you want to, but that comes up less, I, I think, for some reason. I don't know why. Since people are reading about it this week, let's talk a little bit about it. What is exchangeability and how do you know if your data is exchangeable? I don't think it's an easy term to, to understand, actually, and because it, it starts off with this reordering and, and you know, things, like, things like that. The way that I think about it is just in terms of statistical controls or confounding variables or covariates. Your data is exchangeable when you've controlled for, accounted for reasonably to some extent, the other confounding variables that might be at play here. So if you consider this variable, this variable, this variable, you hold it constant, and then you look at these people or these group subjects, right? They're essentially the same. There's no other salient difference here between them. So differences that we're going to find are in terms of this thing that we're interested in. That's the, the claim you're kind of making. You're looking at data from people in this one team. So within this team, is this still happening, right? And then across teams, is this happening? So that's what you're doing. For me, it's just it's a lot much easier to think about just in terms of control variables. The conditional exchangeability in some ways is more important than exchangeability itself. There's an argument to be made that everything is, it's all conditional. You can <laughs> never really be completely independent or exchangeable, or you can never really know if you are. So you do the best you can based on what theory says and what other variables you have at hand. Give your best effort. So given what I've done, like that's what limitations are for, right? So yes, there's <laughs> right. this other variable I, I didn't collect or I didn't have. Yes, there's this other thing, but this is what we have. This is the best we can do. We can test that later if it seems important. You've helped a lot of QE researchers over the years. What's the thing that you think people need the most help with? Where do people seem to get stuck? So on the surface, ENA is actually quite simple. And when you just think about the connections and the networks, that makes a lot of sense to people here. These connections, there's the strength of them, blah, blah, blah. What's difficult for people is the other stuff that happens the, uh, outside of the network, the dimensional reduction and the interpretation of the spaces and what the plotting points are. So I think that's the thing where the people get tripped up on a lot, the relationship between the network, which is kind of easy to grok, and this space and these points and things like that. I find myself having to talk a lot about it. For me, the, the actual, the, the other piece is, is easier for me to understand, like the points and the dimensions and stuff, because I think about it that way or have some other training and statistics that I can relate that to. So that's one thing. The other thing I would say is uh, like forgetting the ethnography piece. A lot of people that I come to me, oh, I would like, I'd like to use ENA on this or I need some help with ENA, right? When they do it, they, they either, maybe they have a model or they've tried a model or they've written a paper and are showing it to me and they've just shown the ENA part. And you know that's fine as far as it goes, but it's really hard to evaluate as, as someone looking at this if it's how valid this is, if I can't see some qualitative interpretation also. And I don't know if those researchers have actually done that qualitative interpretation, right? So you start asking questions about, well, why'd you 
you know, what's your data like? Why'd you use these? Why'd you make these decisions for your model? And unless you've put in that that work qualitatively, you can't you, you don't have justifiable answers for those, which means that your model is, you know, not very valid or it could be useless or wrong. Thinking about getting people to think about this ethnographic piece uh, and where this model is coming from is the other thing I would say. It gets pretty ugly pretty fast if somebody's giving a presentation at a conference or talking to teachers or school leaders, and they start to ask questions about why did you do this or that? And the answers don't go very deep into the actual examples. Yeah. Thanks so much for making some time to talk with us. And uh, for those of you who haven't read Zach's paper, it's fabulous. And I point to it all the time as one of the best examples of QE out there. Oh, well, awesome. Thank you. You you had a hand in that paper as well. So it's, <laughs> well it's, uh, it wasn't just me, but yeah, thank you for having me. Always good to, to talk about um, this stuff. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Quantitative Ethnography Podcast. Interested in using data to impact education? Check out the MS in Educational Psychology Learning Analytics Program at UW-Madison, a 100% online part-time graduate degree designed for working professionals. Learn more at go.wisc.edu forward slash learning analytics.